The text for this morning's sermon comes from Psalm 78. Psalm 78, the first eight verses. It's quite a long psalm. I think it's about 72 verses in total. And these first eight verses, they form the introduction, so to speak, of the psalm itself. So as we work through the sermon, we'll be looking kind of with a bird's eye view of of the psalm through the lens of these first eight verses. So Psalm 78, verse 1. Give ear, O my people, to my law. Incline your ears to the words of my mouth. I will open my mouth in a parable. I will utter dark sayings of old, which we have heard and known and our fathers have told us. We will not hide them from their children, telling to the generation to come the praises of the Lord and his strength and his wonderful works that he has done. For he established a testimony in Jacob and appointed a law in Israel, which he commanded our fathers that they should make them known to their children, that the generation to come might know them, the children who would be born, that they may arise and declare them to their children, that they may set their hope in God and not forget the works of God, but keep his commandments. It may not be like their fathers, a stubborn and rebellious generation, a generation that did not set its heart aright and whose spirit was not faithful to God. So far. After the sermon, we'll also sing from Psalm 78, the first four stanzas, which are these verses put to rhyme and music. Congregation of our Lord Jesus Christ. How many of you... How many of you ever lay awake at night wondering what God has planned for the church? What are things going to look like in 20 years? What are things going to look like a generation from now? What's going to happen when you're gone? When I'm gone? Will the church remain faithful as a light in the world? Or or will the church surrender to the culture around us? Will God only preserve a small faithful remnant? A few years ago, the former Archbishop of Canterbury, he addressed the dwindling membership in the Church of England. and, And that year, they had seen almost 2 million members walk away from the church. And he said this. He said this in response to this massive exodus out of the Church of England. He said, the church, it's only one generation away from extinction. One generation away from extinction. And unless you invest in the youth, he said, everything else that you do It's like rearranging the furniture 
Well, the house is on fire. And that can be a scary thing to think about. In theory, the church could be virtually non-existent within one generation. Just think about the children of people who were once faithful members of a church, and, and they walked away because they turned their back on the Lord. Their children, the next generation, have often been raised without, without any real concept of Christianity. So in that respect, it makes you shudder just thinking about the damage that that one generation of straying church members can inflict on the next generation. Just look at some of the churches around us that used to be filled with devout Christians yearning for the faithful preaching of the gospel. And now a lot of these churches sit empty. Or they've been sold to developers. There's this church in Hamilton I don't know how many of you have been there, but it's this big, beautiful stone church, and most of it has been ripped down, and just the front foyer is left now, and that's going to be the foyer of a new condo development. No one was worshiping there anymore. So if that's the case, if the next generation is that important, if it will be the front line between a vibrant church on the one hand or an extinct church on the other hand, What makes all the difference? Well, obviously at the heart of it all, God. God makes the difference. He is sovereign. Even when we see all these other churches falling away. In fact, that could very well be his judgment upon them for their unfaithfulness. And although that should still concern us, that should also frame things differently in our minds. We shouldn't throw up our hands in despair because we know he is in control. Absolutely. But at the same time, we shouldn't become self-righteous about the way we do things. No, above all, we must trust that Christ is still gathering and defending his church. And when we do that, we will also trust his word. And his word, the Bible, it teaches us that Christ chooses to use People, people who tell the next generation about him. Well, that's primarily how he gathers and defends his church. Well, by many people's accounting, God's method, it seems pretty ordinary, pretty unremarkable. But this is what he lays out in Scripture, including Psalm 78. At the heart of it all is the gospel. Investing in the generation of tomorrow, the children and youth of today, it involves sharing something with them. It's about relating to them the story of salvation in a way that amazes them and makes them marvel and put their hope in the Lord. It's more than just taking all this information and dumping it on our kids. It involves modeling it as adults, embodying the confession that we make. The goal of it all isn't just to raise up another generation of clones who go through the motions, who maintain our traditions. No, we want them to put their hope and trust in God, in Christ, like we do now. So I've summarized the sermon under the following theme. God's people must never forget what he has done. So tell the next generation 
We'll consider three things. The first is the riddle of God's relationship with his people. And then we'll look at the duty to pass it on. And finally, we'll consider the underlying reason for it all. Well, no one knows exactly when Psalm 78 was written. Some suggest it was written by Asaph, kind of like what it says in our Bible here. He was a contemporary of David and Solomon. And others suggest it was written by one of Asaph's descendants during the time of the divided kingdom. And while we don't know for sure, there's no doubt that in the psalm itself, we see that God, he rejects Ephraim in favor of Judah. And it also encourages its hearers to remain faithful, unlike stubborn Ephraim. And so whether this psalm is is speaking primarily about Ephraim's failure during the time of the judges leading up to David, or whether it's talking about Ephraim's part in the rebellion of the northern tribes, its teaching, it still remains relevant for us, as it did for the Israelites when they sang this psalm throughout history. Well, Psalm 78, it's a historical psalm. But it's more than this objective retelling of historical facts of Israel's history. If you read it through, what you'll notice very quickly is that certain key events in Israel's history are actually out of sync. For instance, the the plagues come after the Exodus. And then certain key individuals in Israel's history, they're missing altogether. There's no mention of Saul's kingship either. And so... These, these unique features in this history, they should alert us to the fact that Psalm 78, it's telling a history with a specific purpose in mind. And this comes out in our text, these introductory verses of the psalm. Asaph, he writes in verse 1, he says, Give ear, O my people, to my law. Incline your ears to the words of my mouth. Well, that sounds a lot like Proverbs 7, verse 24. And now, O sons, listen to me and be attentive to the words of my mouth. Well, Asaph, he has words of wisdom, a masculine, teachings for his hearers. And whenever we encounter wisdom literature in the Bible, we are being taught about God and about living in holiness with him. So what's the specific wisdom lesson that the Holy Spirit through Asaph wants to teach us today? Well, he wants to teach us in a parable, and he wants to utter dark sayings from of old about the glorious deeds of the Lord and his might and his wonders. But why does Asaph need to communicate these things via a parable and dark sayings? Well, usually when we think of parables, we think of the way Jesus taught. In fact, in Matthew 13, the verses 34 and 35, it quotes Psalm 78, verse 2, as being fulfilled when Jesus spoke in parables. Jesus, he, he was a master storyteller, and, and he often used parables to teach the crowds and his disciples. And, and one time in Matthew 13, the, the disciples, they come up to Jesus and they say, Jesus, why are you always teaching in parables? Why? And so he replied, and and he told the disciples that parables were God's way of hardening or softening the listeners' hearts. It was only when the Spirit opened their eyes that they could understand the true meaning, the mystery of the parable. 
Parables also showed two types of people. And that's what comes out in Psalm 78. There are these two types of people. There are those who are faithful and keep God's commandments. And then there are those who forget all about it and they walk away. But there's more to what Asaph says. We have in our Bible, I will utter dark sayings from of old. The NKJV in Psalm 49, it's consistent. The ESV says dark sayings here in Psalm 78, but if you go to Psalm 49, verse 4, it says, I will incline my ear to a proverb. I will solve my riddle to the music of the lyre. You still have uh, dark sayings here. But dark sayings, yeah, it, it can mean riddle. So what is Asaph getting at? Why is he speaking in a parable? Why is he uttering a riddle for his hearers to understand? Well, the definition of a riddle is a way of describing something without actually saying what it is, without naming it, and it leaves the hearer to try figure it out. But when you read through Psalm 78, it seems as though describing it as a riddle, it's a bit weird. Why would you do that? What's Asaph getting at? Well, in one respect, the plain meaning of the psalm is right there, right on the surface. Just like the the parables of Jesus. And yet, its meaning is hidden from those who will not see. Humility and repentance are the keys to being able to understand it. And therefore, it becomes a riddle to those who will not, who cannot accept the truths being revealed to them. Well, Psalm 78, it can be divided into these two main sections. And in each section, there's this cycle that repeats itself in four steps. If you turn to your Bibles, we can quickly have a look at this. So in each cycle, there's this first step. And the first step is this. It says that God, he delivers and he provides for his people. And so you see that in verses 12 through 16. And there God, he provides for his people in the wilderness. And then in verses 40 through 55, the Lord provides for his people via the plagues in Egypt. So that's the first step in these two halves. And then then after providing for his people, there's a second step in the psalm. What happens? Well, the people, they forget. The people forget that God provided for them, and they grumble, and they rebel against him. And so in the first half of the psalm, you see that in verses 17 through 20. There they are grumbling away. And then in the second half of the psalm, you see that in verses 56 through 58, grumbling away again, rebelling. And so what happens? There's a third step. What does God do? Well, he punishes them. He judges them for their unfaithfulness. And you see that again in verses 21 to 31 in that first half of the psalm. And then you see that again in verses 59 through 64 in the second half of the psalm. There's judgment for their actions. 
And then finally, there's this fourth step. In his grace, God, he shows mercy to his sinful people. He forgives them and he restrains his anger. And that's verses 32 through 39 and 65 through 72. And so you have these different eras, these different periods in their history, and it's the same cycle. Providing, grumbling, judging, forgiving. Well, what's this all about? Well, it's the story of of the covenant relationship between God and his sinful people. That's the riddle. It's the message of Israel's history and God's way of dealing with them through the covenant. And so, on the one hand, God, he, he clearly explained that the way to receive blessing and favor was through repentance, was through faith, was through obedience. But on the other hand, it, it was a riddle to many in, in, in previous generations who couldn't figure it out. Because they couldn't figure it out, they made assumptions about their status as covenant people. They presumed on the grace of God. They took advantage of God's gracious character, and he punished them for it. So the message of the psalm is this. Covenant people who walk in humility and repentance and obedience experience God's favor. But covenant people who walk in spiritual pride and disobedience experience his wrath. But even in this, God showed his grace. A riddle in itself. Verse 38, look what it says there. But he, being full of compassion, forgave their iniquity and did not destroy them, Yes, many a time he turned his anger away and did not stir up all of his wrath. Well, God's continual grace to a stubborn and rebellious people is perplexing, is amazing. Well, Asaph could only speak about what God had done in the past. Christ, he wouldn't be born for another thousand years. But the words of Asaph in Psalm 78, they point to Jesus Christ. Because in Christ, we find the most amazing and perplexing riddle of all. God became flesh, and he took upon himself our sin. He atoned for our iniquity, and he took the wrath that was supposed to fall on us, the judgment that was supposed to fall on us. He took it on himself. And so the message of the cross, the riddle of the cross, is based entirely on God's sovereign good pleasure. And it remains foolishness, and it remains a stumbling block to those who have hardened hearts. But the foolishness of God, as Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 1, is wiser than man's wisdom, and the weakness of God is stronger than man's strength. You see, in Christ, we find the guarantee of God's grace to all who repent and live by faith. 
But at the same time, the cross is also a guarantee of God's wrath and judgment on those who refuse to repent and believe and live by faith in Christ. And therefore, the riddle of the cross, the riddle of the gospel, it can only be understood by faith. Whether it was 3,000 years ago when Asaph wrote this psalm, or today, as we hear it looking back at the cross. And this understanding, understanding of this riddle, what does the psalm say? It says that it begins with knowledge. That's how you're going to understand this riddle. Asaph says in verse 3 that we believe these things because we have heard them and we have known them from our fathers. And so in turn, we must not keep silent and we must not hide the meaning of the riddle from the coming generation. That brings us to our second point, verses 5 and 6. Well, what comes out clearly in verses 5 and 6 is that adults of the covenant have a duty to pass the story on of God's glorious might, his deeds, his wonders, on to the next generation. But this is only half the story because it's about the covenant. It's about, it's about a relationship. There are two parties here. It's not enough that the next generation only knows about God They also need to be taught the message that's embodied in the historical details. You see that in the books of Moses. It was to Israel that God intimately revealed himself. He told them his name. He revealed his gracious character. He displayed his mighty power. But he did more than that. He instructed them in the way that they should live so that they could live with him in covenant holiness and fellowship. And that's the other half of what the next generation needed, needs to hear. Because when they forgot these things as Ephraim is accused of doing in the psalm, the result was that their heart wasn't steadfast toward him and they were not faithful to his commandments. Well, that's what Asaph is getting at in verses 5 and 6. When God entered into covenant with his people, he established a testimony in Jacob. He appointed law in Israel. So not only did he promise to be their God, but he outlined the law, his instruction, his expectations. This is what he required of his people if they were to live in holiness with him. That's what we read in Leviticus 20, verse 26. It says, You shall be holy to me, for I the Lord am holy, and I have separated you from the peoples, that you should be mine. What's more is that we see in these verses that the passing on of this testimony, the passing on of this law, it was the duty of, of parents, but specifically fathers. And this is a theme that pops up throughout all of Scripture. Think again of Deuteronomy 6. We read that after the law. Fathers were the ones who were expected to explain to their sons the meaning of this testimony and the meaning of the statutes and the rules that the Lord had commanded. They were the ones who were responsible for teaching the law to their children. 
for talking with them as they sat in the house, as they walked, as they lay down, as they got up. And similarly, Paul, he writes about this in Ephesians 6, verse 4. He says, Fathers, do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. What does this instruction look like? Today, it probably looks quite a bit different than it did during the days of Asaph or Paul. Most of our communities support Christian schooling. In fact, many Christian schools, I don't know about this one here, but they'll cite Psalm 78 as the basis for what goes on in the classrooms. And that's all well and good. Christian schooling is a wonderful blessing, and and I'm often... So thankful and amazed when I hear about what my kids have learned when they come back home from school. But the reality is that that Christian schooling is meant to assist parents in fulfilling their baptismal vows, to raise their children in the fear of the Lord. If we're talking about assistance, Everyone in this congregation has that same duty to assist parents in fulfilling those vows. So even if you're a grandparent, even if you're single, you have a duty to help out the parents in the midst here. There's that old saying, it takes a village to raise a child. But scripture says it takes a church. It takes a covenant community to raise the next generation. However, none of this replaces the role, the responsibility, the duty of parents, specifically fathers, in telling the next generation. Fathers are the, need, are the ones who need to, to lead the charge in telling the next generation about God and about faithful living. So when I hear stories about 15-year-old catechism students who can't explain the gospel in their own words, the fault, it, it doesn't begin with the child necessarily. It doesn't begin with their catechism teacher or their teachers at school. No parents, specifically fathers, are responsible Of course, there are exceptions. I realize that. Sometimes parents and teachers can do everything in their power to raise children up in the fear of the Lord, and the child will not listen. But nevertheless, as a rule, Scripture is clear that the buck stops at fathers. It's not enough that you work like a dog to pay for Christian schooling. It's not enough that you make sure your your kids get to catechism on the right night. Telling the next generation, it involves personally taking time out of your busy schedule to sit with your children, to walk with your children, to talk with your children about purity, about holiness, about love, about God. It involves praying for them. It involves praying with them. It involves opening scripture with them. 
Be the father that God calls you to be. Through the example that he has set before all of us in Scripture. Well, I use that word example intentionally. You see, this instruction, it involves more than telling words and and, and telling things to our children. The Hebrew of verse 5, it's clearer than our English translations. What it literally says is, is, is cause them to know. Cause the next generation to know the Lord and his laws by your words and by your actions. If you do that, if you embody, if you model your confession of faith, then the next generation will notice. Well, kids can spot hypocrisy a mile away. And apart from the grace of God intervening, there are two possible negative outcomes when you set a hypocritical example for your kids. If you teach them one thing by your words and you do a totally different thing in your lifestyle, then one day they just might say to you, you know what, I'm not interested in a life of hypocrisy. And they walk away from the Lord. Or they'll simply follow your example and they'll grow up from little hypocrites into big hypocrites. And they won't even realize it because that's all they've ever known. That's not real faith. Now obviously this doesn't mean you have to be a perfect parent. Otherwise you're a complete failure. I know in my own case I fail all the time. And as parents we depend on the grace of God. But it does mean that that when you sin as a father, when you sin as a mother, when you make mistakes, that you're quick to repent before God, that you ask for his forgiveness, that that you demonstrate to your children what it means to live by grace. Let them see clearly the hope that is in your heart. That hope of Christ that motivates and shapes and informs everything you do as a Christian. And that's our third point. Verses 7 and 8, they conclude Psalm 78's introduction by outlining the the underlying reason for all of this instruction about God's, his mighty acts and, and his law. It's so that the next generation will keep God's commandments. But what's the connection between the two? Why does Asaph expect that people who remember God's mighty acts of salvation will be obedient to his commands, on the other hand? Well, Asaph wants us to tell the next generation about these things, about God's grace to a sinful people so that they will be amazed, so that they will be astonished by him, and so that they will put their hope in him. In the Old Testament, God explained this to his people through Moses in connection with the Passover. In Exodus 12, verses 26 and 27, we read, And when your children say to you, What do you mean by this service? 
you shall say, It is the sacrifice of the Lord's Passover, for he passed over the houses of the people of Israel in Egypt when he struck the Egyptians but spared our houses. And listen to this. The people bowed their heads and they worshipped. Living with God in covenant holiness, it begins by knowing who God is and what he has done. But the real issue is getting it, is understanding it, is owning it, is making it yours. That's what moves us to humbly worship him in the way that he desires. We seek to express our thankfulness because he has saved us with a mighty hand through Christ's death on the cross. This is why we tell the next generation. In our scripture reading from 1 John 1, the apostle John, he writes along these similar lines. And here John, he writes about believing in Jesus, about confessing our sin, about trusting in his one sacrifice on the cross. And he says, we received this, We heard this, we saw it, we have touched it, and now we proclaim it so that those who hear may believe and may have fellowship with God the Father and his Son. That's what needs to be front and center in our lives as as Christian parents, as members of the current generation, the generation in charge. And so we need to hold this truth up, this truth of Christ for the next generation to see so that they will believe and so that they will respond in thankfulness. Because if we don't, the alternative is rather frightening. Verse 8, Asaph, he warns his listeners about what will happen if the wonders of God are forgotten and his commandments are not kept. A generation will grow up whose heart is not steadfast, whose spirit is not faithful to God. That's what we read about in Judges chapter 2. After the death of Joshua and his generation, another generation grew up who did not know the Lord or the work that he had done for Israel. And within one generation, they turned away from the Lord and they began to serve God the Baals and the Ashtaroths. They abandoned him and chased after all these foreign gods. And as a result, they kindled the anger of the Lord. And they were judged for their wickedness. So in typical wisdom literature fashion, Asaph, he sets before his hearers two ways of life. Wisdom and folly. He tells a history lesson that's as concerned about the past as it is about the present, as it is about the future. It's similar to what a 20th century philosopher once wrote, those who can't remember the past are condemned to repeat it. For this reason, Asaph's message of history is as relevant today as it was for Israel. You know, we could easily substitute our history, our desire to claim the good things in the world as our own making. And we also pain God with with our sinful stubbornness. 
And therefore, we also need to learn from the past so that we can be faithful and thankful for his salvation and grace in Jesus Christ. And so when highlighting the importance of teaching, of knowing, of telling the story of the wonders of God, Psalm 78 is a lesson in the crucial importance regarding religious instruction. It's true in a way this. Every era in the church, it's, it's only one generation away from extinction. But at the same time, the church, it will never be extinguished. Christ will continue to gather and defend his church until he returns. And the mechanism he uses, according to Psalm 78, is people. One generation telling the next generation about him, about what he has done, so that they in turn will grow up in faith and will trust him and will serve him with all their heart, with all their soul, and with all their might. Amen.